Hello, dear listener, and thank you for tuning in to A Minder. Today's episode is on the prevention and intervention of Alzheimer's disease, as told by 17 papers published in 2022, uh, February 2022. My name is Nyla, and I'll be taking you through the latest literature on cognitive training, exercise, diet, and neuromodulatory techniques or stimulation techniques. All of that coming up right after this quick introduction to our podcast. Welcome to A Minder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. So as usual, before I launch into today's summaries, I'd like to remind you that what we do here at Aminder is not a critique of any of the research. We're doing a quick overview of the latest literature that came out, that is peer-reviewed articles that we search and download on PubMed. So we're summarizing based on the abstracts. If you want to follow up and get into the nitty-gritty, we invite you to do so on your own time. And we provide the bibliography and all of the references throughout so that it's easy to do so. With that out of the way, let's get started on cognitive training and multi-domain interventions. And first up, we have a paper that combines multiple of the lifestyle factors that we'll be looking at separately today uh, in the subsequent papers. So paper number one was published in JMIR Research Protocols by first author Gray and last author Glenn. At, this is at the University of Arkansas in the United States, as well as Neurotrack Technologies in California. And the title of the paper is Intervention for a Digital Cognitive Multidomain Alzheimer Risk Velocity Study, Protocol for a Randomized Controlled Trial. In this study, middle-aged and older adults at risk of Alzheimer's, or AD, participated in a two-year digital lifestyle intervention, the effects of which were compared with a health education control group. The intervention was a digitally delivered, personalized health coaching program directly targeting the modifiable risk factors of AD. So that can include things like diet, exercise, and cognitive training. And you can check out our other episodes, especially the risk factors episode that I host, in order to learn more. The others just finished screening for this study, but it sounds like the actual data collection is still underway. They'll be looking at AD risk as the primary outcome measure, but we'll also be evaluating whether the intervention affects fitness, blood biomarkers related to AD, and cognitive function. Check the paper for details on the sample size and how they'll be measuring AD risk, and you'll also find the link to the clinical trial if you'd like to keep it on your radar. 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 Sometimes it's hard to say words when you're recording them, dear listening. Dear listener. Oy, oy, oy. Okay, let's move on to paper number two. So actually, the next two papers are about cognitive training more specifically. And what I mean by cognitive training is uh, exercises or regular practice on tasks that stimulate memory, executive function, attention, and other cognitive domains affected by dementia. So this one, this paper, number two, is looking specifically at uh, the link between cognitive difficulties and their impact on quality of life, emotional well-being, and social isolation. 
The title is Alzheimer Cafe Toward Bridging the Gap Between Cure and Care in Patients with Dementia. This is by first author Maggio and last author Calabro at IRCCS Centro Neurolesi Bonino Pulejo. It's in Italy. <laughs> and lastly, this paper was published in the International Journal of Neuroscience. This study reports on the cognitive and behavioral outcomes of the Alzheimer's Cafe program on 20 participants with AD. You'll have to check the paper for the details on the program, but it involves both cognitive and behavioral training. The experimental group was compared to a matched group of patients with neurodegenerative dementia who underwent conventional cognitive training. When the authors compared cognitive, behavioral, and quality of life assessments before and after the intervention, they found that both groups improved in global cognitive function and in perceived quality of life. The Alzheimer Cafe group additionally had significant increases in social functioning and their perception of their mental well-being, and they had reduced depressive states. These findings lend evidence to this program leading to positive outcomes both in psychological and social well-being beyond conventional cognitive training. So speaking of more conventional cognitive training, we have paper number three, but this one is looking at the underlying mechanisms of cognitive training. So this was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Suarez Mendez and last author Mestu um, at the Universidad Politecnica de Madrid and the Clinic San Carlos Hospital also in Madrid. And the title of paper three is Cognitive Training Modulates Brain Hypersynchrony in a Population at Risk for Alzheimer's Disease. So as you just heard in the title, this paper focuses on brain hypersynchrony. This is apparently an early sign of dysfunction in AD, and from what I understand, it's an imbalance of inhibition and excitation in the brain that causes regions to become too activated. So that's similar to what happens in seizures, for instance. The authors wanted to know whether cognitive training could directly modulate brain synchrony, bringing it back to a normal state, especially in people with preclinical signs of AD. They tested the effects of a 10-week cognitive training intervention on 22 healthy controls and 24 people with subjective cognitive decline, and also had a non-intervention control group, or actually two groups, um, so for both populations. Brain synchrony was measured using magnetoencephalography, so that's MEG, from which the authors could determine functional connectivity, and they also evaluated neuropsychological scores before and after the training. They found that in both groups that had undergone cognitive training, the functional connectivity decreased within the temporoparietal and the temporo-occipital connections, where it had been higher before. The reduction was stronger in the subjective cognitive decline group and somewhat correlated with improved cognitive performance. This suggests that cognitive training can have a direct effect on functional connectivity and therefore on normalizing brain synchrony in people at higher risk of AD. So next up, I've got two papers on diet, and the first one is on mushrooms. Mushrooms are one of those foods that divide people. I happen to love them, and so I'm happy to learn that they're a rich source of antioxidants and vitamin D. 
And these nutrients are thought to have neuroprotective properties, which is what first author Ba and last author Ritchie dig into with paper number three, entitled Mushroom Intake and Cognitive Performance Among U.S. Older Adults, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, 2011-2014. to This is from Penn State College of Medicine, as well as the Pennsylvania State University, and it was published in the British Journal of Nutrition. This study looks at the association between mushroom consumption and cognitive performance in a sample of around 2,800 U.S. adults aged 60 years and older. I want to flag that this type of study actually usually ends up in my B1 epidemiological studies episode. That's the usually risk factors uh, or episode that I mentioned earlier. And this is because this study is an observational study rather than an intervention. However, it fits better with the themes of this episode today. Anyway, the authors measured mushroom intake with two 24-hour dietary recalls on the basis of which participants were categorized into three groups, that is lowest, middle, and highest consumption of the mushrooms, which I would be in the latter group. They tested cognitive function on multiple tests and adjusted for sociodemographics, major lifestyle factors, self-reported chronic diseases, and dietary factors. The authors found that compared to the lowest category of mushroom consumption, Participants in the highest category had significantly higher scores in several of the cognitive tests used, but not all of them. You can check the paper for those details, but the authors conclude that while greater mushroom intake may reduce the risk of cognitive decline, more research is needed to really understand this association and which elements of the mushroom seem to be having this protective effect. Next up is a paper on a type of diet rather than a specific food. We're taking a look at the ketogenic diet, which actually came up in a recent episode of mine as well. There's definitely a growing interest in the fields and in popular culture about whether this high-fat and low-carb diet could be neuroprotective. So the latest with paper number 5, entitled Effects of Ketogenic Diet on Cognitive Functions of Mice-Fed High-Fat, High-Cholesterol Diet. And this is by first author Lin, and the last author's name is also Lin, and it's from Taipei Taipei Medical University in Taiwan, and was published in the Journal of Nutritional Biochemistry. So in this study, 70 mice were fed a high-fat and high-cholesterol diet over 16 weeks to see whether the equivalent of a ketogenic diet in humans could have effects on cognitive performance in these mice. The mice were then either given medium-chain triglyceride, that is MCT, or they were given metformin for another eight weeks. And MCT helps induce the state of ketosis, and is often used as a supplement in ketogenic diets. Whereas metformin, on the other hand, is used for regulating blood sugar, so it acted as a control group in this study. The authors found that the mice that received MCT after the high-fat and high-cholesterol diet had significantly better spatial learning and memory performance compared to those that received metformin. They also had lower expression of a number of proteins linked to neurodegeneration and inflammation, which you can check in the paper, and they had higher expression of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, that is, BDNF. So that suggests that the ketogenic diet containing MCT shows potential for slowing neurodegeneration in mice. 
Onwards to a recurring topic in lifestyle interventions for Alzheimer's disease, and that is exercise. There's plenty of evidence that exercise is good for the brain, obviously for the rest of the body too, and perhaps even particularly good for the aging brain, but there's still so much to be understood regarding the type of exercise, the ideal frequency or duration, how to encourage people to stay physically active, and of course, why exactly exercise is so good for the brain. We've got five papers today that take a stab at these questions. So let's start out at the neuronal level with paper six, entitled Post-Exercise Serum from Humans Influences the Biological Tug-of-War of APP Processing in Human Neuronal Cells. This was published in the American Journal of Physiology and Cell Physiology by first author Marco and last author McPherson at Brock University in Ontario, Canada. If you're listening to a minder, you likely already know that one of the neuropathological hallmarks of AD is the accumulation of amyloid beta or A-beta peptides, and that targeting A-beta production pathways is one of the most prominent therapeutic strategies in the field. The authors in this paper draw on previous evidence of the capacity for exercise to reduce A-beta peptide production to then ask the question, what is the underlying mechanism? In this study, they tested whether serum from human participants who had just exercised could alter neuronal amyloid precursor protein, that is APP, processing. To test the effects of the post-exercise serum, they treated differentiated human SHSY5Y neuronal cells with the post-exercise serum for 30 minutes, and they compared them to cells that were treated with pre-exercise serum from humans as well. The authors then looked at the cells 30 minutes or 24 hours later to see whether any indicators of APP processing were changed. They found no statistical differences in ADAM10 and BASE1 mRNA or protein expression between the two serum treatments at either time point. However, the protein's activity was increased in the post-exercise serum condition. There was also an increase in the soluble so that is the SAPPA and, or sorry, the SAPPA to SAPP beta protein content after 30 minutes of post-exercise serum treatment, which suggests that APP is getting cleaved primarily through the non-amylogenic pathway. Oof, sorry, that was a lot of uh, words there. Overall, the results suggest that some factors that are present in serum post-exercise can modulate important enzymes involved in APP processing. Of course, more work is needed to disentangle exactly which factors are driving the effects and how. This was a neat departure from the exercise animal studies I usually cover in these episodes, which I will turn to now. We're looking at a transgenic rat model of AD for this next paper, number 7, with first author's Yang and Wu, and last author Zhang. This is primarily from the Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center and the Medical College of Georgia, uh, Augusta University. It was published in Geroscience, and the title of paper seven is Long-Term Exercise Pre-Training Attenuates Alzheimer's Disease-Related Pathology in a Transgenic Rat Model of AD. The authors start out by mentioning that this study was done in a novel transgenic rat model of AD. So I encourage you to check out the paper for more of the methodological details. 
They set out to investigate whether treadmill exercise would affect learning and memory and other neuropsychiatric behaviors in these rats, as there is a lot of evidence of cognitive improvements following exercise in established mouse models. They used male two-month-old rats and compared wild-type rats, transgenic AD rats, and AD rats that had undergone exercise. Beyond the behavioral testing, the authors also conducted an extensive analysis of neurobiological changes, including an AD pathology, neurodegeneration, synapses, mitochondrial function, oxidative stress, and neuroinflammation. They report long-term exercise did alleviate some of the learning and memory deficits and the anxious, depressive-like behaviors seen in these AD rats. It also attenuated amyloid beta deposition and tau hyperphosphorylation and preserved some structural and functional elements of synapses. There were also improvements in neuronal damage, neuronal apoptosis, and uh, degeneration. And the authors mentioned that additional studies also revealed that exercise suppressed oxidative stress and neuroinflammation. So while there aren't many details in the abstract, I do encourage you to dig into the paper for more. We just heard a little bit about neuroinflammation, which is the focus of the next paper, appropriately published in the Journal of Neuroinflammation. Microglia play an important role in regulating the brain's response to inflammation and often come up when we talk about some of the underlying mechanisms of Alzheimer's. We have a monthly bibliography dedicated to the immune system and glial cells if you're interested in going down that rabbit hole. But for today, we'll just dip our toes in with paper 8, which is entitled Long-Term Running Exercise Improves Cognitive Function and Promotes Microglial Glucose Metabolism and Morphological Plasticity in the Hippocampus of APP-PS1 Mice. This is by first author Zhang and last author Tang at Chongqing Medical University in China. We're now looking at a common transgenic mouse model of AD, that's the APP-PS1 mice. In this study, the authors wanted to know whether exercise directly impacts microglial metabolic activity and brain glucose metabolism, particularly by looking at the expression and function of TREM2, which stands for Triggering Receptor Expressed in Myeloid Cells 2 and is a genetic risk factor in AD mainly expressed in microglia. It is associated with microglial-mediated waste clearance and regulation of inflammation, and its functions are compromised by the rare genetic variants linked to AD. So back to the study, 10-month-old male transgenic and wild-type mice were divided into sedentary groups or running exercise groups, with 20 animals per group. After three months of free access to a running wheel, the authors tested behavioral changes, conducted PET imaging to look at brain glucose metabolism, and also looked at the expression of various proteins related to microglial function. So, all that to say, they found that the running exercise improved cognitive function in the transgenic mice, which usually have learning and memory troubles. There was also evidence of increased glucose metabolism following exercise, particularly in the hippocampus, which could contribute to improved cognition. The authors also report on changes in the levels of various proteins, including increased levels of TREM2. I encourage you to check the paper for details. The microglia in the hippocampus of the transgenic mice that had undergone exercise were also more numerous and changed in morphology. They had longer processes and endpoints. 
So overall, the authors highlight that exercise maintained TREM2 protein levels, promoted brain and microglial glucose metabolism, and induced plasticity changes in the hippocampus. Since we're already talking about glucose metabolism, let's bring in insulin as well. There's lots of research linking diabetes to Alzheimer's and a lot of interest in the shared neurological underpinnings of these two diseases. Paper 9 explores whether exercise can improve the delivery of insulin across the blood-brain barrier, as apparently insulin resistance within the central nervous system is a common feature of cognitive impairment. Paper 9 is published in the Journal of Applied Physiology by first author Brown and last author Rhea, or Rhea. It is from the Veterans Affairs Puget Sound Healthcare System in Seattle, as well as the University of Washington in Seattle. And the paper is entitled, Insulin Blood-Brain Barrier Transport and Interactions Are Greater Following Exercise in Mice. So here the authors set out to test whether the positive effects of exercise on cognition could in part be due to the enhanced transport of insulin across the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier keeps unwanted things from the bloodstream from entering the brain, but it is selectively permeable to stuff that the brain needs, including insulin. The authors in the study used uh, standard lab mice, so these are male and female CD1 mice, to trace the pharmacokinetics of radioactive insulin and to measure changes in serum levels of substrates that regulate insulin blood-brain barrier transport. The abstract doesn't get into much on the experimental design, so please check the paper if you're interested in the methods. But the authors find that in male mice, insulin transport across the blood-brain barrier was greater following exercise, and in both sexes, exercise increased the binding of insulin to blood vessels for transport and altered insulin receptor signaling in the brain. These effects were independent of any changes in the serum levels of factors known to alter insulin blood-brain barrier transport so more research is needed to draw any link between the therapeutic effects of exercise and its ability to increase insulin delivery to the brain. To follow up that insulin talk and round off our section on exercise, we've got a paper on whether physical activity could decrease dementia risk in people diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. This is again a paper that would normally fit into my epidemiological studies episode, but we're living on the edge and bending some rules today. So paper 10 is in this episode and it's published in Diabetes Care by first author Yu and last author Nam. This is from Seoul uh, National University Hospital in the Republic of Korea, as well as Ulsan University College of Medicine, also in Korea. And the title is Changes in Physical Activity and the Risk of Dementia in Patients with New Onset Type 2 Diabetes, a nationwide cohort study. The authors followed nearly 134,000 patients newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes to see how changes in their physical activity habits might affect their dementia risk, as determined by new dementia diagnosis or drug prescriptions for dementia. They categorized participants into four groups based on their physical activity habits. First group, a continuous lack of physical activity. Second, a decrease in activity. Third, an increase in activity and fourth, a continuous physical activity. Over a median follow-up period of about five years, there were just over 3,200 new cases of all-cause dementia, 
which included AD among other subtypes. Regular levels of physical exercise was associated with lower risks of all-cause dementia and of AD or vascular dementia specifically. Participants who increased their physical activity level over the study period also had less risk of all-cause dementia, but the greatest risk reduction across dementia subtypes was observed in the group that continuously engaged in physical activity throughout. You can find details of the group comparisons and hazard ratios in the paper, but suffice it to say that engaging in physical activity does seem to reduce dementia risk in this high-risk population. So that brings us to the halfway point of our episode. Enjoy a quick break from my voice, and I'm going to try to articulate a bit better in the second half. Um, That is, we have seven more papers to go on neuromodulatory techniques right after this break. Hi, dear listener. This is Nyla, host and co-founder here at Aminder. I've been hosting with the team since 2020, and not only has this taught me a lot about Alzheimer's disease, but I've also learned a lot about my inability to articulate words and to keep a consistent distance from the microphone. I apologize for that. But overall, it's been a really rewarding experience and one that we would love to share with you. If you'd like to take a deep dive into Alzheimer's research and science communication, then I've got good news for you. We're currently recruiting new hosts and content creators for the podcast. Just email us at aminderpodcast at gmail.com or contact us through our social media pages and tell us a little bit about yourself. Looking forward to working with you soon. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years. And sadly, no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. All right, we are back. And the second half, as I mentioned, is going to focus on neuromodulatory techniques which is my umbrella term for any non-pharmacological ways of changing neuronal activity. In this case, it's in ways that might improve cognition or directly target AD pathology. The majority of these techniques work through some type of stimulation, whether it be electrical, magnetic, or through sensory input. The techniques range in invasiveness from a little coil placed around the scalp to electrodes that are implanted directly in the brain to stimulate certain brain areas. So let's start off with a mouse model with a paper that provides a nice bridge from our last section. So paper 11 is entitled Combined Effects of Aerobic Exercise and 40 Hertz Light Flicker Exposure on Early Cognitive Impairments in Alzheimer's Disease of 3XTG Mice. It was published by first author Park, last author Kim at the University of Nebraska at Omaha and Tiangsang uh, National University in the Republic of Korea and it was published in the Journal of Applied Physiology. The authors previously reported that combining exercise and light flickering at a 40 Hz frequency can protect against AD-related pathology and cognitive impairment in an AD mouse model. I'm not sure whether I've covered their research specifically, but I have covered some studies on the potential therapeutic effect of 40 Hz light flickering, which induces gamma oscillations in the brain. 
Here, the authors extend on their previous work by seeing whether the same positive effects are seen in younger mice, that is, in earlier stages of cognitive decline in this transgenic mouse model. So using 5-month-old 3x transgenic mice, they tested whether 12 weeks of exercise combined with 40 hertz light flickering, altered learning and memory, as well as AD biomarkers, neuroinflammation, mitochondrial function, and hippocampal neuroplasticity. You can check the paper for details on the experimental and control groups. The authors report that the intervention reduced the levels of amyloid beta and tau proteins and protected against cognitive decline by reducing neuroinflammation. There were also improvements in mitochondrial function and increases in synapse-related protein expression. The combination of exercise with 40 Hz light flickering was more effective than one or the other alone, and the improvements observed in the transgenic AD mice were comparable to those in the non-transgenic control mice. Overall, these findings highlight a synergistic therapeutic effect between exercise and this non-invasive stimulation technique. Let's stick with 40 Hz light flickering for this next paper, which takes us down to the molecular level, so buckle in. Paper 12 is entitled Gamma Frequency Light Flickering Regulates Amyloid Precursor Protein Trafficking for Reducing Beta Amyloid Load in Alzheimer's Disease Model. It's by first author Shen, last author Qing from South China Normal University in China, and was published in Aging Cell. So while 40 Hz light flickering is already under investigation for its potential to reduce pathological uh, AD, hallmarks. It's unknown how this happens, which is what the authors of this study wanted to determine. This paper gets very technical, so for the sake of the podcast, I will try to keep it surface level. The authors look at how the light flickering causes changes in the anchoring of amyloid precursor protein, that's APP, to the plasma membrane of neurons, and how it physically interacts with a channel called KCC2, which helps transport potassium and chloride and could be involved in reducing amyloid beta production. Stimulating the cell membrane with a light flicker kept the KCC2 channel from being internalized and degraded, meaning it stayed on the cell surface longer and could do its anti-amyloid beta job. The source of these cells and the exact equipment setup is not described in the abstract, so check the paper. The abstract does, however, get into a lot more details regarding how other receptors at the plasma membrane are involved in this whole choreography, which I will also point you to the paper for. But overall, the findings suggest that 40 Hz light stimulation moves APP to the plasma membrane, which in turn acts on KCC2 to reduce amyloid beta pathology. Let's move on to another technique, electroacupuncture in which acupuncture is combined with electrical stimulation. From my following this literature over the past year, I've seen this come up consistently in one or two papers every month, but most of the research seems to be done at the animal level for the time being. Paper 13 today is looking at the effects of electroacupuncture in APPPS1 transgenic mice. It's by first author Zhang and last author Li from Henan University of Chinese Medicine and was published in a Chinese article, so actually, or sorry, Chinese journal, and the article itself is in Chinese, um, but the abstract is translated to English. 
So the authors of this study randomly divided 46-week-old transgenic male mice to receive electroacupuncture treatment or not. Another 20 male non-transgenic mice of the same age acted as the control group. The electroacupuncture treatment was applied at three acupuncture points. That's the Baihui, or GV20, Fengfu, which is GV16, and Shenshu, which is BL23. This was for 20 minutes daily, six days a week, over 16 weeks. The authors then looked for evidence of neurogenesis in the hippocampus of these mice. Firstly, they report that the transgenic mice that did not receive electroacupuncture had significantly lower levels of BRDU, which is a marker of neurogenesis, compared to the non-transgenic mice. They also had lower expression levels of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, and nestin, which are also markers of neuronal proliferation and health. The expression of these three markers was significantly higher in the electroacupuncture group than in the transgenic mice that didn't receive treatment, suggesting that electroacupuncture did enhance the proliferation of hippocampal neuronal stem cells. The authors also modeled the neurons of the hippocampal dentate gyrus of these mice, and though I can't give you more details on what exactly that entailed from the abstract, they found that the new cells had a clear neuronal contour and nuclear structure. They conclude that electroacupuncture activates neural stem cell proliferation, which may therefore improve hippocampal neuronal structure and upregulate BDNF expression. We're leaving electroacupuncture behind and making a jump from mice to humans for the last few papers. This next one looks at transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS, which is a non-invasive technique where electrodes are placed over the head to stimulate brain regions through direct electrical currents. Paper 14 is published in Cerebral Cortex by first author Jordan and last author Hampstead at the University of Michigan and the Mental Health Service in Ann Arbor, USA. And the title is High Definition Transcranial Direct Current Stimulation Enhances Network Segregation During Spatial Navigation in Mild Cognitive Impairments. TDCS has already been under investigation for its therapeutic potential for AD, so this study was less so focused on whether the treatment improves cognition and more so on what the underlying mechanisms might be. The authors used functional magnetic resonance imaging, that is fMRI, to examine brain-wide changes in functional network segregation. This means they're looking at the balance of within-network and between-network connectivity in the brain, and seeing whether it changes following TDCS. Their study included 20 older adults with mild cognitive impairment, that's MCI, and 22 cognitively intact older adults who acted as the control. All participants underwent two counterbalanced 20-minute high-definition TDCS sessions, one of which was active and one of which was a sham, where no electrical current was applied. The stimulation targeted the right parietal cortex, and the participants then engaged in a spatial navigation task while their brain activity was evaluated by fMRI. The authors found that compared to healthy controls, MCI patients showed lower brain-wide network segregation following the sham TDCS treatment, which suggests a baseline difference in functional connectivity. After receiving the active treatment, the network segregation in MCI patients increased to levels similar to those observed in healthy controls, so that suggests a functional normalization resulting from stimulation. 
The authors found that this increase in network segregation was primarily driven by the effects of the stimulation on quote-unquote high-level brain networks, in particular the dorsal attention and default mode networks. They conclude that the therapeutic effects of TDCS may in part be due to its ability to restore the balance between segregation and integration of association brain networks. So this nicely links with the first paper of our episode, where cognitive training also changed functional connectivity in the brain. Paper 15 also seeks to uncover some of the mechanisms underlying the cognitive benefits of neuronal stimulation, but this time we're looking at repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, or RTMS. It's also a non-invasive technique in which magnetic fields are used to modulate brain activity. So we've got the latest from first and only author Mano from NARA Medical University in paper 14 entitled Application of Repetitive Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation Over the Dorsolateral Prefrontal Cortex in Alzheimer's Disease, a pilot study. And so this is published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. This study explored the feasibility and cognitive benefits of delivering RTMS to the bilateral dorsolateral prefrontal cortex of 16 patients with AD. The high-frequency RTMS treatment was delivered through five daily sessions for two weeks, and you can check the paper for more details on the stimulation paradigm. All participants completed the study with no adverse effects being recorded, so this confirms that the intervention was feasible. In terms of its efficacy, Scores on the Japanese version of the Montreal Cognitive Assessment increased by 1.4 points following two weeks of stimulation, but cognitive function scores returned to baseline after one month. So it seems that the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is involved in the neural network underlying AD and cognitive impairment, but given that the improvement was only transient, more research is needed to test the efficacy of RTMS stimulation and to determine the best parameters for this intervention. Paper 16 brings us to electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, which for many people carries a negative connotation. I know I immediately think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. But ECT has progressed a lot since its initial use, and is now used to treat some psychiatric conditions, such as extreme cases of depression or bipolar disorder. Paper 15 explores whether ECT could help mitigate agitation in people with AD, as this is a common behavioral symptom. So this was published in the Journal of ECT. The first author is McManus, and the last author is Petritus. It's from multiple universities across the U.S., and the title is Stimulated Electroconvulsive Therapy, a novel approach to a control group in clinical trials. So little research has been done on the therapeutic potential of ECT for AD, in part because of the stigma around it. The authors of this study argue that randomized controlled trials on ECT are necessary to determine whether it is safe and efficacious for mitigating agitation and aggression in Alzheimer's, and they set out to do just that. But this trial has not started, and so the paper outlines the rationale, study design, methodology, ethical and practical challenges, and management strategies for investigating whether ECT is a safe and effective strategy for treating behavioral symptoms in AD. So be sure to check it out. One final paper on neuromodulatory techniques, and this one is quite different from the rest. It's on ultrasound, which you may know primarily as a diagnostic technique 
but it's also under investigation for its potential to open the blood-brain barrier. When we heard about the blood-brain barrier in the insulin paper earlier, and why it might be important to have some things cross from time to time. So there's actually a line of research I've been reporting on over the last few episodes about whether opening this barrier, ever so briefly and slightly, could also help clear amyloid beta from the brain, which would in theory reduce the pathology underlying AD. Of course, the blood-brain barrier also exists for a reason. It keeps pathogens and other harmful things from entering the brain, so there's a lot to consider in this line of research. You can check out Ellen's episode on vascular contributions to AD for more on the blood-brain barrier and how its dysfunction is problematic for amyloid clearance, among many other things. But let's round off this episode then with paper number 17. This one is in the Journal of Personalized Medicine by first authors Yang and last author Yu at the Catholic University of Korea and Harvard Medical University, or sorry, medical school rather, and the title is Short-Term Efficacy of Transcranial Focused Ultrasound to the Hippocampus in Alzheimer's Disease, a Preliminary Study. So in this study, the authors investigated whether low-intensity transcranial-focused ultrasound could successfully open the blood-brain barrier, affect the regional cerebral metabolic rate of glucose, and improve cognitive function in AD. The study involved eight people with AD who received focused ultrasound to the right hippocampus and underwent MRI, PET imaging, and cognitive assessments before and after. The authors found no evidence of a blood-brain barrier opening by MRI, but there was an improvement in recall and recognition memory in a verbal learning test. PET imaging also showed an increase in the metabolic rate of glucose in the targeted hippocampus, which was correlated with the memory improvement. So clearly, the focused ultrasound did have an effect, even without a clear blood-brain barrier opening, and the treatment also showed no adverse effects. And that concludes today's episode of Aminder. I hope you found it useful and accessible. And of course, I would like to thank everyone who has worked on the episode today. So that is our very hard-working sorting team, as well as our management team, which is Sarah Luedi, Ellen Kosh, Ellen Rowe, myself, Anusha Kamesh, Jacques Ferreira, uh, Lara Anbazi. And Ellen Rowe also reviewed my script. The episode is edited by Michelle and reviewed by Ellen Kosh. Anjana did the bibliography. And our music is by Anusha. I encourage you to check out not only her Aminder episodes, but also her music on SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh or on YouTube under AK Music. If you've been enjoying Aminder, please consider leaving us a review on Google or Spotify or wherever you're listening to your podcast. And reach out to us on social media if you have any direct feedback. And you can also email us if you're interested in joining the team. And I will be back very soon for Epidemiological Studies published in February 2022. I will talk to you then.